Revelation chapter 11, encourage you, if you came without a copy, to uh, grab one from under the seat in front of you, or find one on your phone somewhere so you can follow along in Scripture as we uh, go through the message today. So we are uh, almost dead center in the book of Revelation. Uh, Letters to seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. And our perspective on this has been that these are things that are taking place now. Uh, These aren't events that await the future, uh, a seven-year period of time, as many believe, but I've described these things as, as taking place even now, and they began when Christ ascended to heaven uh, in uh, the beginning of Acts. And so what we see is present reality. Christ reveals to his church things that, uh, he said, would soon take place, and indeed they started immediately. And this is uh, the perspective we've been taking. We, we've, we're in chapter 11. And chapters 10 and 11 are kind of a, a pause in, in the seven trumpets, uh, seven trumpets. And, and right before the seven, seventh trumpet that comes toward the end of chapter 11, we've, we've got this break, this interlude. We, John's given another vision of the risen and sovereign uh, Christ in chapter 10. And, and then we've described chapter 11 as, as a message of uh, comfort and commission. Uh, to Christ's church. Uh, We began this last week, and we want to continue this this morning. So let me begin reading our portion of Scripture in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 6 of Revelation chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, but leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. For if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is the Word of God, Uh, inerrant, authoritative. Let's ask for his help as we begin today. Jesus, give us insight, send your spirit afresh upon us that we can understand these words, this vision that John received. We desperately need your help to see. Uh, Strengthen me to proclaim your truth today, Lord, we ask. Savior, in your precious name, amen. Well, The Gospel of Matthew records some of the very last words of Christ on earth. Matthew chapter 8, 28 rather, uh, contains these words. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Now, you've probably heard those verses several times before. Uh, they are commonly referred to as the Great Commission. These words of Christ uh, in this short paragraph, uh, commission uh, or charge or instruct his followers to make disciples of all nations. And he tells them how to do that by going to them, by baptizing them and teaching them all that he's commanded. We're in a portion of Revelation 11 that is similar to Matthew 28. These verses I've just read, 18 through 20 of Matthew 28. Because this portion of Revelation 11 also contains a commission, a summons, a charge to us this morning. Indeed, all those who belong to Christ's church. Here in our passage today, we'll see Christ commissions and empowers his church with the glorious privilege of proclaiming his word to the world. What's that you say, Pastor Rob? Christ commissions and empowers his church with the glorious privilege of proclaiming his word to the world. The entire chapter is a chapter of comfort and commission. He comforts his church and then reminds them of their mission. And I mentioned last Sunday at the beginning that there are four parts to chapter 11. We looked at the first part last Sunday, which had to do with the identity of the church. Who are these words written to? Who is this for? And last Sunday, uh, we, we said that this comfort and this commission is given to those who genuinely belong to Christ. They're described as the temple uh, here in verse 1. Uh, we said that his church had three characteristics. The church consists of those in proximity to God those who draw near to him through Jesus the Son. We said that the church is those who are protected by God. And we saw this in terms of John measuring them, marking them, setting them apart. And then third, we said uh, that uh, the church consists of those who are persecuted by the world. Uh, the Gentiles are given authority to trample uh, the outer courts of the church. Christ's comfort is given to those who possess those three characteristics. It's about the identity of the church. But now we're going to move on to the second part of this chapter, and that has to do with the witness of the church, our mission in the world. And as I said before, Christ commissions and empowers his church with the glorious privilege of proclaiming his word to the world. There are Two parts to this witness I want to point out to you this morning from our text. The first part uh, is that Christ commissions his church. And then the second part we'll see is that Christ empowers his church. But let's begin with this first aspect here. First, Christ commissions his church. Jesus summons his church to faithfully proclaim his word throughout the age that we live in. 
I want to mention three things about his commission to the church. First, it's a commission given to his faithful church. It's a commission given uh, to those who faith who are faithful to him. Uh, this is the object. Uh, these are the recipients of this commission. Look at verse three in your copy of the word. It says, "And I will grant authority." to my two witnesses. Well, who are these two witnesses? Many have identified them as Moses and Elijah because of the way they're described in verses 5 and 6. Uh, still others say they represent the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets. Others suggest they represent Enoch from uh, the book of Genesis and the prophet Elijah. Others say that these are the law and the gospel, uh, and yet others say they're the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, others still suggest that they represent some of the apostles. There is no shortage of ideas about who the two witnesses are. Verse 4 gives us the most solid clue to their identity. Uh, jump down to verse 4, and it says, uh, these are the two olive trees, these, that is, the two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, we read about those two olive trees just a few moments ago in our scripture reading. And I'll come back to this phrase about the two olive trees in just a few minutes. For now, I want you to concentrate on that second phrase there, uh, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Christ identifies these two witnesses as the two lampstands. Uh, the word lampstands, I hope, maybe rings a bell. This takes us all the way back to chapter 1. Uh, in Revelation Chapter 1, you may recall that John received a vision of Christ standing in the middle of seven lampstands. In those lampstands, it says in chapter 1, verse 20, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven churches, if you can think back, were the seven churches of Asia Minor that John wrote those letters to. And in chapter 2 and 3, we see uh, what Christ said to them. Well, Pastor Rob, if there's seven churches uh, in chapter uh, 2 and 3, in chapter 1, 2, and 3, why aren't there seven lampstands here? It's because only two of those churches were faithful. Uh, the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. All the other churches uh, received criticism from Christ. Those other five churches uh, were told to repent, to repent of something and to do the works they did at first, or repent of this and buy white clothing to clothe yourselves, things like that. And so that's why there are only two uh, lampstands mentioned here in verse 4. Uh, every other church has fallen short in some way, but these uh, represent the two faithful churches. Uh, they represent churches who stayed faithful to Christ and his word. Listen to one scholar. He says, thus there is pictured here the faithful remnant church who witnesses. This is who Christ commissions. The two witnesses 
who are the two lampstands from the first chapters of Revelation. It's his church that he commissions here, his faithful church. Well, then the second thing I want to point out is what he commissions them to do. And so the second thing we see here is he commissions them to faithful proclamation, to faithfully proclaim his word to the world. Again, look at verse 3. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. Well, what does that mean? They will prophesy. Does that mean that Christ calls his church to go around predicting the future, to uh, announce what's to come? Well, the word prophesy that John uses here in the middle of verse 3 can refer to predicting the future or foretelling, foretelling, announcing in advance what's going to happen. And isn't that often what we saw the prophets of the Old Testament doing? Uh, uh, the, the, uh, The prophet Jonah Uh, announced to Nineveh that the city would fall unless they repented. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied 70 years of captivity to uh, to the Israelites. They announced what was coming. In fact, John's an example right here of someone who is foretelling, announcing what's going to come. Uh, But this foretelling, stay with me now, this foretelling, Uh, was concluded at the end of this book. At the very end of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, brought the whole idea of foretelling prediction to a complete end. Because he writes in chapter 2 these words, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Or much more simply put, John is saying no new prophecy after this. Uh, No new revelation. Uh, No more revelation from God. This is it. No more foretelling. Well, there's another part of this word that I want to be sure you get. Not only can it refer to foretelling, announcing the future, it can also refer to forth-telling. Forth-telling. And think with me again about the Old and New Testament prophets. Isn't that a large part of what they did? Uh, Didn't the prophets of the Old Testament call God's people to turn from their idols to worship the one true God? All the time. And, and didn't uh, the prophets, John in particular, think again of John, call God's people to turn from sexual immorality, clothe themselves in white garments, uh, and walk in holiness before the Lord? Yes. That's another part of this word. Forth-telling. Uh, proclaiming the truth. This forth-telling... This proclaiming the truth of God's word is probably what Peter had in mind on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. The Apostle Peter said these words in Acts chapter 2. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. It's most likely Peter's referring to this aspect of prophecy. Fourth telling. John Calvin put it this way. Prophecy at the present day is simply the right understanding of Scripture and the particular gift of expounding. So, there, there's no more foretelling, announcing what's to come, except from what you can read in the Word, of course. No more foretelling, no more fresh revelation about the future, but there is foretelling. And this is something we're all enjoined to do, to proclaim the truth of Scripture to the world around us. This is what Christ commissions his church to do. Declare his world, uh, declare his word uh, to the world. Now, if we go on further, there's a particular way that Christ wants us to do this. There's a specific way he calls us to do this prophesying or foretelling. Go back to verse 3 and let me show you again. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, which we've identified as the faithful remnant of his church, and they will prophesy, foretelling his word, for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Uh, in the Bible, sackcloth was usually made not from burlap bags, as you might think, but probably something just as irritating to the skin. Sackcloth was usually made from black goat hair and was often worn around the waist like a kilt. Uh, people would put on sackcloth as a sign of mourning, a sign of sorrow, and a sign of repentance. And for, for example, I mentioned Jonah. When the prophet Jonah went to the city of Nineveh and called them to turn from their sin, Nineveh, that great wicked city, um, capital of the Assyrian Empire, Jonah says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Uh, from the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. They mourned their sin. They were uh, sorry for their sin. And this was a sign of their repentance to put on sackcloth. So our proclamation to the world must include a call for repentance. The good news we proclaim must include a call for people to turn from their sin, to turn from their self-righteousness, to turn from their self-sufficiency, to turn from their idolatry, uh, to trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. What this verse is reminding us to do is to proclaim the truth of the word just like Jesus did. 
Uh, it says in Mark's gospel at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, it says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. There's that idea of forthtelling, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Both things Christ proclaimed repentance and faith in Jesus uh, in his payment for sins. Listen to um, uh, Pastor Joel Beakey describe this. People often talk about evangelism that is positive rather than negative and that stresses salvation rather than a call to repentance. But this is a profound mistake. The message that you and I must proclaim to a world under the judgment of God is repentance toward him and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the sackcloth is all about. So second, we see uh, uh, that we are called to faithful proclamation. And the faithful part of it is not just the good news of Christ dying on the cross, but also a summons for people to turn from their sin. One more thing I want to show you in this commission of Christ, and that is, it is also a call to faithful endurance. He calls his church to proclaim the good news all throughout this age of tribulation that we live in. Again, verse 3, we see this in verse 3, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Some believe that this refers to a literal period of time, an actual 1,260 days or three and a half years as it turns out. But as we've seen throughout Revelation, John uses, uh, relies largely on symbols and tends to use numbers in a symbolic way. And so 1,260 or three and a half years uh, represents half of seven. Seven would be a complete period of time, but three and a half would be an incomplete period of time or an indefinite period of time, a, a period of time cut short. And so this describes a period of time that's shortened by God. Listen to one Bible scholar say it. Uh, it is the period from the Great Commission to the Consummation, from the birth of the New Testament church to the end of the age. Well, whatever length of time it refers to, Christ commissions his church to faithfully proclaim the word throughout the age, to share the gospel with those around us till the end, until he returns or until, until he calls us home to heaven, you and I are summoned to proclaim a message of repentance and faith in Jesus' payment for sin on the cross. This is the third thing we see about his commission. Now, I wanted to say, I often leave people in tears with my sermon, but I couldn't think of it in time. Well, this commission hasn't expired. It's still in effect. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, and, and here... Uh, Christ is renewing John and his church in a summons to faithfully declare his word 
to the world around us. Well, it's a tall order. I mean, I hope you can see that that is a, it's a pretty, pretty staggering thing that we're summoned to do. But I want to go on and show you the second aspect of our witness. And not only does Christ commission his church, the second thing we see, he empowers his church. And we'll see here that he empowers his church in three ways. And the first way he empowers his church is through his powerful spirit. Uh, through his powerful spirit. Look back up and, and go back to verse 4. And let me pick up that phrase I skipped just a minute ago. Verse 4 says, these are the two olive trees. Again, he's identifying the two witnesses. Uh, he's identified them as the two lampstands, the two faithful churches. He also identifies the two witnesses as the two olive trees. We read about this in Zechariah, that kind of unusual passage we used for scripture reading today. That was about that was uh, dropping us in in Israel's history when they were trying to rebuild the temple. When they were, were literally from the ground up, they were trying to build a new temple that Babylon had raised, destroyed. And it was hard and discouraging work. And through that chapter, uh, the Lord encourages him that he's going to rebuild that temple through two olive trees or two anointed ones, it says. Uh, one was Zerubbabel, whose name you did very well with today, by the way. Uh, and the other is probably Joshua, the high priest. And the point of Zechariah 4 is that that the Lord tells Israel in, in Zechariah that he will rebuild that temple not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Through those two, those two olive trees, through those two anointed men, through the power of their leadership, I will again rebuild this temple in this famous, well-known verse that we all used to sing the chorus to back in the 70s or 80s, not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You know, so we have to understand that the Old Testament is just part of the warp and woof of, of John's thoughts. The Old Testament is so much a part of his DNA that these references just come spilling out all the time as he's writing the book of Revelation. And here, this phrase, these are the two olive trees. And he's referring to those two men who, who by their leadership and by the Spirit's power, would rebuild the temple. Uh, and just as they saw that the temple was rebuilt through the Spirit's power, so Christ's faithful church will carry out this commission he's given us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This is what he told his disciples in Acts 1. Again, a verse that's familiar to a lot of us. Uh, and uh, Christ is about to ascend to heaven, and they ask him, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the temple? And he says, uh, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I just want to help you see that there is a cause and effect relationship between those two phrases. The cause is in the first phrase, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here's the effect of the Spirit coming upon them, and, or as a result of, or in consequence of that, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Uh, uh, of course, this same principle holds true for you and I. The, the way we carry out Christ's commission and faithfully proclaim his gospel, a, a gospel that says repent and believe, the way we faithfully carry that out is through the enabling power of his Holy Spirit and not by our own steam. Again, let me quote Dr. Beakey here. The church will prevail against the opposition of this world not by its words, might, or organizational power, but by the Holy Spirit who fuels and empowers the light of the gospel through the witness of the church. I think so often you and I feel that, that we share the gospel by our clever words. And yeah, it's helpful to maybe practice some words on how you're going to share with people as the team that goes to Guatemala practices how they'll share with people down at the mission stations. But your clever words aren't what saves people. Ever. Ever. And sometimes churches think, wow, well, let's put a pastor over this area and let's get him to recruit people to go out and, and go door to door and share the gospel through the neighborhood. And by our organizational might, we will see people come to the Lord. Well, the, the Lord might bring somebody to know Christ through those efforts, but not because. Not by might, not by power. By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He's the one who empowers your words to your coworker. He's the one who works through the, your words to your son or your daughter. He's the one who uh, works through the words, uh, your words to your grandson. He's the one who uses your words to bring them under conviction and bring them to faith in Christ. Well, I want to I show you what the Spirit uses. The, primer, the prime mover in uh, our witnessing is the Spirit, but what does He use? That's the next thing we see. Christ empowers His church second through His powerful Word. Uh, we see this in verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, again, the two witnesses, his faithful church, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And I could see some of you thinking, wow, send me out. That sounds cool. Uh, 
again, we see the, the, the DNA, uh, uh, the Old Testament in John's DNA. He's probably uh, referring to the prophet Jeremiah, thinking of Jeremiah and what the Lord said to him because it's very similar. Uh, the Lord said, therefore, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. And so here's a clarifying comment. Now, of course, Jeremiah did not literally turn into a human flamethrower. However, the word of God in his mouth was powerful to convict sinners and ultimately condemn them if they rejected his testimony. And it's not that the church is, is bent on destroying its enemies. We don't turn into human flamethrowers either. But the word of God that we're called to proclaim has a fiery aspect to it. Those who reject the gospel of repent and believe, of repentance towards sin and faith in the atoning death of Jesus, those who reject that will face the fiery consequences of, of God's judgment, which is eternity in the lake of fire. But we possess the same powerful word. Paul talks about it in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel that is, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then again in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is no ordinary book. This is not paper and ink. Just paper and ink. They're God's very words, and God's Spirit works through them to convict people of their sinful condition and save them through Jesus' payment for sin on the cross. You're holding it right now. That's what God's Spirit uses. Listen to the power from the book of Hebrews. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but, we are, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There was a, a fairly well-known American named Daniel Webster great attorney and an orator, and isn't this a fantastic picture? He was an imposing figure in a court of law. And it's said that uh, once he stared a witness out of the courtroom, apparently Webster knew the man was there to deliver false testimony, so he fixed his dark beetle-browed eyes on the man and searched him. According to the story, later in the trial, Webster looked around again to see if the witness was ready for the Inquisition. The witness felt for his hat and edged toward the door. 
A third time, Webster looked on him. And the witness could sit no longer. He seized its chance and fled from the court and was nowhere to be found. Now, don't misunderstand me. We don't share the good news about Christ and call people to turn from sin with a furrowed brow. That's not the message I'm trying to communicate to you. Is that the Word of God has that kind of power to penetrate to the depth of someone's soul. You know, we don't need to walk in there with a crowbar. We simply need to share the Word and the power of God's Spirit and let the Word do the work in people's hearts and have this kind of effect on them to bring them to see that uh, they too are sinners uh, under God's judgment and their great need to put their faith in Jesus. This Word has the power to convict people like that. God empowers His church through His powerful Word. One more thing I want to uh, talk about here. The third way God empowers His church is through powerful prayer. Uh, through powerful prayer. Look with me at, at verse 6 now. They, again, this is the two witnesses, the faithful church, the faithful remnant of Christ's church, faithfully declaring His word, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Well, the first part of that verse, uh, the, the part about shutting up the sky, that's a reference to the ministry of Elijah. Uh, again, we see the Old Testament in John's DNA. In the days of wicked King Ahab and, and, and wicked Queen Jezebel, the Lord sent a drought on Israel, and it's it, uh, described here in 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. <clears throat> well, and then verse, go, verse 6 goes on in the second half to refer to the ministry of Moses, turning waters to blood. This is again in the... In Israel's captivity, a reference to the first of, of the ten plagues. But the point of this verse, referring to both Elijah and Moses, seems to be that Christ's two witnesses, Christ's faithful church, will possess the same kind of power that Elijah and Moses had. Uh, Scholar Leon Morris says John's imagery here in verse 6 expresses the truth that God's servants in the new dispensation have as great resources as Moses and Elijah did in the old. And you, I can hear you saying, Pastor Rob, how can that be? How can Christ's church have anything approaching the power of these men?
Well, in the case of Elijah, we know exactly where the power came from. Because his word tells us in James 5. You remember? James 5 offers us this explanation. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And just stop. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What an immense comfort uh, in Breathed out by God's Holy Spirit, God is telling us that we are like Elijah. But it goes on, a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it continues, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so, Elijah's power to, as it says, shut the sky, came through powerful prayer. And you and I have access to the same kind of power through prayer. Listen to the Word of God. Describe it. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. Uh, John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Of course, first, the abiding in the first half of the verse requirement for the second half of the verse to be fulfilled. John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father, the inferences, because we'll have the Spirit in us. He goes on, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John, 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Christ's church has the same kind of power as Elijah. Available through the power of prayer. This photo uh, is of a completely different man who has a much kinder looking face. This is George Mueller, who you might recognize. Uh, he's a very godly man who lived in, in the 1800s in England, uh, ran an orphanage there, and is perhaps best known for his remarkable life of prayer. Uh, this is just one account of how God used powerful prayer in the life of George Mueller. It says, Things looked bleak for the children of George Mueller's orphanage at Ashley Downs in England. It was time for breakfast and there was no food. A small girl whose father was a close friend of Mueller was visiting in the home. Mueller took her hand and said, Come and see what our father will do. 
In the dining room, long tables were set with empty plates and empty mugs. Not only was there no food in the kitchen, but there was no money in the home's account. Mueller prayed, Dear Father, we thank Thee for what Thou art going to give us to eat. Immediately they heard a knock at the door. And when they opened it, there stood the local baker. Mr. Mueller, he said, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you had no bread for breakfast, so I got up at 2 o'clock and baked fresh bread. Here it is. Mueller thanked him and gave praise to God. Soon a second knock was heard. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. He said he would like to give the children the milk so he could empty the cart and repair it. Through Mueller's prayer. Why is it that we have such a difficult time and don't have the power of Moses and Elijah, George Mueller? Well, Jesus describes it in Matthew 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mueller seemed to have a, an abundance of that ingredient. Because this next account demonstrates it to us. One day, George Mueller had began praying for five of his friends. And after many months, one of them came to the Lord. Ten years later, two others were converted. It took 25 years before the fourth man was saved. Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for the fifth friend. And throughout those 52 years, he never gave up hoping that he would accept Christ. His faith was rewarded for soon after Mueller's funeral, the last one was saved. I know it's hard to believe, but Christ's church has the same kind of power that Moses and Elijah and George Mueller had. And this power is our, at our disposal through prayer. And so we pray for those who we think don't know the Lord. We pray for our children. We pray for their conversion. We pray for our, our relatives who we think probably do not know Christ. We pray for those people who work next to us who don't seem to have a clue. We pray that God reveals himself to them, maybe even through our words. We pray for those around us to come to Christ. You know, there, there was a uh, Charles Spurgeon was questioning a young pastor. And the young pastor bemoaned that he wasn't seeing anyone come to know the Lord through his ministry. And so Spurgeon questioned him, says, Well, sir, do you expect to see conversions in every service? He said, No, of course not. So, said, Well, that's your problem. Now, I'm not 
trying to manipulate anybody or say anything weird, you know, of what we should expect. But we should pray in faith that the power of God's Word and God's Spirit saves people. That is the power. And we pray constantly that God will use our words and His Word to save those near us. The third way God empowers His church through powerful prayer. Not only does He commission His church, He empowers it as well. He empowers it in these three ways, through His powerful Spirit, His powerful Word, and powerful prayer. This is our commission. Christ commissions and empowers His church with the glorious privilege of proclaiming His Word to the world. And we've seen two aspects. The, the commission itself, uh, Christ commissions His faithful church. He commissions them to faithful proclamation and to faithful endurance. And then He empowers His church through His Spirit, through His powerful Word, powerful prayer. Let me pray for us as we conclude today. Lord, I simply pray that you would use your powerful word in the lives of in each of our lives today, whether there's someone here who's yet to trust in the atoning death of your Son on the cross, or whether we're someone who's known you for a long time and needs to be reminded that we're called to faithfully share the Word to the world. We pray you would move us by your Spirit for that person who doesn't know you to come to saving faith in your son maybe for the older saint to be jarred from their complacent state help them to remember that they're called to share the good news and not just keep it to themselves either way please work in us by your good spirit heavenly father we pray through jesus your son amen